I'm Paul Post, Professor of International Relations at the University of Chicago, and you are listening to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Please listen carefully. 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 everybody. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. It's me, your host, Lauren Seppard. I'm a bit under the weather today, as you can probably hear in my voice, and I apologize for that. But however grating my voice is and however difficult it is to listen to me today, um, hopefully we're making up for it with not one, but two really interesting segments today. First up, we've got Paul Post back on the program to give us an update on the changing war in Ukraine. Now, Dr. Post was on our show way back in March, just a month into the war, to discuss the various possible outcomes as he saw it from his perspective. And today, he's back with us to give us an update on his assessment. Dr. Post is a professor of international relations at the University of Chicago and a go-to expert in this area, so this should be really good stuff. Then in segment two, you'll hear yours truly on the Bold Dominion podcast. Bold Dominion is a podcast focusing on issues concerning the state of Virginia, and they asked me to come on and explain the ways in which neighborhoods impact the future success of children raised in them. And I've conducted a lot of research in this area, so I was really excited to be a part of that interview. Now, when I listened back to it and, and listened to myself on this in this interview, I didn't cringe too badly when I heard it, so hopefully you won't uh, either. But first things first, let's get to Dr. Post to give us an update on the war in Ukraine. All right. So, Dr. Post, so uh, can you describe for our audience the state of the war when it began? So how were things going for Ukraine? How are they going for Russia when the invasion first happened? And how has it changed over time to the present day? That's kind of a second question. And then third, uh, how should each side feel about the state of the war today. So how did it start? How is it now? And how should each side feel? Well, first of all, thank you for having me back on the podcast. And a lot has changed, or I should say a lot has happened and changed since the last time we've been on the podcast. So just as a way of recap, that might be the easiest way to answer this question is to remember that, of course, this war started in February, late February, of this year with Russia invading Ukraine. And that started off by following what you could call the Crimea model, or what I've been referring to as the Crimea model. What that means is that back in 2014, when Russia took control of the Crimean Peninsula, they did was they followed an operation that was very quick. They sent in their troops right away, took control of roads and territory and barely a shot was fired. They were able to do this very quickly, following what we would refer to as a fait accompli, was what they what they did. And it seemed like because that operation was so successful and so quick, it seemed like that back in early February, they were trying to do the exact same thing, but at scale for the entire country. And so they were doing similar procedures, sending in their forces, using the roads, 
um, and really not even using a large enough force, you would think, for trying to take over and control an entire country. That didn't work, though. They quickly got bogged down by fighting with Ukrainian forces. The Ukraine, <laughs> the Ukraine, Ukrainians were not too keen to just simply allow Russia to again come waltzing in and take territory. Of course, that was something they were not able to prevent back in 2014. But now you're talking about the entire country. There was fierce fighting breaking out. They were starting to receive assistance right away from the West, from the United States and from NATO. And of course, it's important to remember that they were already receiving some assistance in this regard, uh, really going back since 2014. So what that meant was Russia had to then pivot and going from what seemed like an initial operation to take control of the entire country, possibly have regime change um, by conquering Kyiv and replacing the government there. They had to pivot away from that. And they did by turning to what I could then call a Chechnya model. And this is in reference to the military operations that Russia was carrying out in the early 2000s and late 1990s in their province of Chechnya. And in this case here, it is not about controlling the territory. It is really about punishment. Mm -hmm. And so that was what you started to see was they were turning towards a military operation of using force, targeting civilians, and really the objective became about punishing Ukrainians at that point. You also saw where they started to shift their strategy from trying to take over the entire country to instead gaining control of the eastern portion of the country. And that seemed to become then the objective. At the same time, the Ukrainians are receiving more and more support from NATO, from the United States, from the West. And what that meant was you now had Russia following this kind of punishment strategy and consolidating their position in the East. You had Ukrainian forces receiving assistance from the West. And what that was leading to was then essentially a stalemate. And you had the war reaching a stasis over the course of the summer, the late spring and into the summer, where it seemed like the two sides, the battle lines were drawn. Neither side was really going to be able to push the other side in either direction. And that would be the recipe for a protracted conflict. And, and that was something you were worried about at the beginning, right? Was that quagmire? Exactly. Yeah. Very much concerned about that. And you could see where that was what was setting up. Right. Um, and I had even started to talk about in the in June and into July about how this would potentially start to look like the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s, that mm -hmm. it had kind of that feel to it, kind of that, that appearance. And what I mean by that is that was an eight-year conflict where there was a lot of activity at the beginning, but then eventually it just bogged down to where the two sides were kind of in a protracted stalemate, a lot of fighting trench warfare. And at the end of eight years, not a whole lot happened, mm -hmm. not a whole lot changed. Um, but what did happen was well over a million battlefield deaths. And so it was a very deadly war, even though it was a war that, again, from a practic practical standpoint, territorial change standpoint, just really didn't do much either way. And that seemed to be where this war was heading. That's where it was going, right? And then what yeah. happened? And then what happened was... At the beginning of this month, 
Ukraine launched a very skillful counteroffensive against the Russian forces. And the way that this was carried out was really just so well designed. And it was designed not just by Ukrainian forces, but we now have a lot of information that it was also assisted. The design was assisted by um, NATO forces, by the United States, by military planners, um, Pentagon, U.S. Pentagon military planners admitted to helping to assist in the planning of this. But essentially what they did was they carried out a two-pronged counterattack. And they carried it out targeting the city of Kharkiv, which is basically in the northern part of the Russian-controlled territory, and then the city of Kherson, which is in the southern portion of the Russian-controlled territory. And what they had been doing is for weeks leading up to this attack, and this would be consistent with just this protracted conflict, they were pounding those areas. So the Ukrainians were using a lot of the heavy artillery that they were receiving from the West to just to start bombarding Russian forces at those locations. They also started amassing troops around Kershaw in the south, trying to make the make it look like that was going to be the main thrust of the attack. And that seemed to be effective because Russia started diverting forces to Kershaw. It would make sense. Kershaw is a major city. It's near the, the water, the Black Sea. So it seemed like a sensible place for them to then strike. And then what happened was about a little over a week ago, the Ukrainians launched the counteroffensive. They indeed did send forces to start attacking at Kershaw, but the main thrust of the attack was actually in the north at Kharkiv. And what that allowed them to do was make very quick progress through the Russian lines. And the reason why they were able to do that was because the Russians weren't expecting the bulk of the attack to be coming from that direction. And so they were able to make quick progress. And this really put the Russians on their heels. And since then, there's been now follow-up for starting to push that counteroffensive. Now, there hasn't yet happened. You know, if you look at the maps, there's now reached another stasis, but it sets the stage for yet another counteroffensive mm -hmm. that Ukraine could follow up with another one, another one. And if that were to happen, you would no longer be in the scenario of potentially eight-year war. You could be looking at a scenario where the war could be over sometime next year. Now, that's mm -hmm. real important to keep in mind that as successful as that counteroffensive was, it's not going to be instantaneous success in terms of ending the war. The weekend of the counteroffensive, President Zelensky, president of Ukraine, of course, very famous now, globally famous, you know, considered like a new Churchillian figure because of the position that he's he's taken in terms of standing up to Russia. He even said that the, quote, next 90 days, nine zero are going to be critical. Right. Mm -hmm. So that would be under the best case scenarios. You're still looking at another three months of fighting. And that's under a condition where if the Ukrainians receive the continued assistance that they need and are able to follow up on this counteroffensive. But again, what this shows is that at this point, it's really not a matter of Russia being able to win this war. It's really a question of whether Russia can avoid losing the war. And that's something that we can talk about. But it's very clear at this point that the momentum is on the side of the Ukrainians, and in particular, 
the Ukrainians with all the assistance they're receiving from the West. So uh, remind us, and again, this is not like a gotcha question. I'm not saying, you know, haha, you thought the war was going this way and now it's going to go this way. That's not at all uh, what I'm doing here. Uh, but remind us just to sort of situate us in thinking about how the momentum has changed and what the possible outcomes could be now. What was your most likely outlook when when the invasion first happened? What did you think was going to be the long lasting outcome of this war? And then if you had if you had to place your money now, what are the most likely one or two outcomes now? Well, when the war started, obviously there was it was so dynamic at the beginning and things were happening so quickly. There were a lot of potential ways that this could have gone. And it, a lot of it depended on how easily the operation went for Russia. And of course, as the summary I just provided indicated, it did not go well for Russia early on. But had it gone well, you might have seen a scenario where Russia would have tried to advance further, possibly move into Moldova, maybe even try to attack Poland. This is, you know, these are or even even maybe try to go as far as to reclaim control of the Baltic states. Those were all things that potentially could have been there had that been an easy operation for Russia at the beginning. But of course, that's not what happened. And so they ended up getting bogged down. And at that point, it did seem like a likely scenario was that this could become a protracted conflict mm -hmm. where you would have you know, neither side really being able to push the other side. You have Russia, which Russia has a history of being willing to tolerate a lot of casualties. They are not risk averse. They are not casualty averse when it comes to carrying out war and conducting war. They are willing to take a lot of punishment. And then you combine that with the Ukrainians, who, of course, are fighting on their territory, highly motivated and receiving massive assistance from Western countries. That's the recipe for both sides to be dug in. And so that seemed like that was where things were going to go. And indeed, over the course of the summer, it very much looked that way. Um, and I had even written a piece that was in the Washington Post where I talked about how kind of the scale of this fighting and about how this looked like the fatality levels were going to make this one of the most devastating wars really in the history of interstate wars, so, you know, top 10% in terms of the fatality levels. And so that's that seemed like where things would be likely to go after the first several weeks that seemed to be also where things were heading over the course of summer. Like I said, this counteroffensive has changed things quite a mm -hmm. bit and has now made us kind of reassess to say, well, maybe this war could be over in the next several months. Mm -hmm. Could Russia actually become exhausted? Is there the possibility that Putin could be deposed? Now, there are several ways in which this could go. Honestly, I still think that there is a good chance that the that as much as this counteroffensive was notable, and encouraging, there's still a good chance that we could see kind of a settling down and a continuation of the stalemate. That is still a very much a real possibility. So the first scenario that we could see would be going back to what we were just talking about would be kind of the next 90 days. Ukraine has all this momentum and they basically kick Russia out of the country. Um, that would be kind of your quick victory on the part of Ukraine. And that is a possibility. I don't know if that will happen, but that could happen. And indeed, there are a lot of things about this counteroffensive that point to how that could happen. I think a second scenario is that we kind of go back to where we were. 
that it was the counteroffensive was there. It shows that Ukraine is not going to lose the war. Ukraine has the ability to win it. But again, Russia is willing to dig in and they're not going to they're not going to lose quickly. They're going to continue to tolerate punishment and force Ukrainians to continue to be punished and to continue to take on casualties. So that's another possibility. And I think that's a very realistic one. I think that is, you know, kind of returning to that stasis. There are some other scenarios. Another scenario could be that the the Russians are on the defensive. They're moving, they're falling back. They're losing territory quickly. And you could see, and this is something some people are very concerned about, you could see a scenario there where maybe Putin authorizes the use of nuclear weapons as a way to maybe stop the falling back, as a way to have the ultimate punishment of the Ukrainians to say, look, if you're going to take out our army, we're going to make sure that we do lasting damage to you. Um, There's, of course, questions about what would that actually achieve by using these. But I think from the standpoint of if you're just looking at pure punishment, that could be one reason to do it. Also, if you're looking at the idea of kind of stopping their offensive to say, look, you want to keep coming, we're going to drop nukes on you. We're going to use you know, what they call tactical nukes. That is a possibility. It is not as likely as the other two scenarios, mm-hmm. but it is a scenario that could happen. Um, a final possibility is that Putin himself could be deposed. And so all of this is kind of people even referring to it as Putin's war, right? And so the idea that maybe Putin could be removed from office, and if you remove him from office, that will set up the possibility for a quick settlement. Is there any sign of, of that kind of like elite pressure or mass uprising pressure on Putin right now? And that's the thing, from my perspective, I just don't see that happening. Right. It is right. something that people think could happen, but I just don't see it. I think it's real important to remember that with authoritarian regimes, oftentimes we like to look at the protests in the streets and see these mass movements, and we think that that's really what drives things. But oftentimes when authoritarian leaders lose office, they lose office because of an internal coup, right? Mm-hmm. They lose office because someone within their inner circle replaces them. And I just don't see a scenario where that's going to happen. Moreover, if Putin were to be deposed, it's not immediately clear how much this is truly just Putin's war. Right. Right. That it would be that maybe the reason he's deposed is not because there's opposition to the war, but there's opposition to how he's conducting the war. Right. And so the the person replacing him could be just as likely to continue prosecuting the war. So that last scenario you know, I think it's unlikely Putin is removed from power, but even if he is, I think it's unlikely that that actually leads to an ending of the conflict. Yeah, three stories that I was hoping to get your feedback on and how they might tie into this. So, uh, one, when you when you hear about them uh, enrolling prisoners into the army, you see that story coming out. How does that strike you as somebody who studies this? Well, I think it's it's in the category of bad ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and and the reason why is because what are they going to do? My my understanding of what we're seeing here is they're showing up and then they're just surrendering, right? Oh, wow. like, you know, this is this is and it's it's not surprising. I mean, this is something that Jay Lyle at Dartmouth College, he's written a book, uh award-winning book titled Divided Armies. And it's all about kind of the cohesion within armies, ethnic cohesion, nationalistic views, different ways of kind of looking at 
cohesion within armies. And he's been very big on the idea that that is just not going to work. You know, this is not this is not conducive to a cohesive army. And Russia's already shown that it's not a very cohesive army. This will only exacerbate those issues. Another story that I've seen is this issue of um, these drones from Iran and other uh, uh, armaments that they're getting. How much should we make of this story? Is it important? What's your perspective on that? To me, the take on drones coming in from Iran, I mean, I think it's important to remember that Russia still has some supporters, right? Russia is not a complete pariah, but they're a but the support is highly conditional for Russia. So what do I mean by that? For instance, Russia is still able to sell its oil. Mm-hmm. which makes sense, right? You take Russian oil totally off the market and somebody's going to want that oil. But the someones who are willing to buy it, say China, India, are willing to buy it at a steep discount. Right. And so on the one hand, that does allow Russia to continue to sell that oil. But on the other hand, it's not giving them the quite the revenue flow that they actually need. So to me, it's important to recognize that Russia still has supporters, if not at the same level as like Ukraine, obviously, where you know, we're, we're essentially at a point, and I've made this case elsewhere, we're essentially at a point where this is not a war between Russia and Ukraine. This is a war between Russia and a coalition of countries where Ukraine is at the lead, right? That that is really what this is. This is now a coalitional war effort of NATO countries and Ukraine fighting Russia. And Russia, of course, doesn't have that same level of support. But there are a lot of countries that are willing to give it conditional support and also willing to turn a a blind eye to any issues that are going on here. Um, they're, they're much willing, they're willing to say, look, you know, we'll, we'll sell these armaments, we'll buy this gas. It's not for us to make calls on this conflict. We hope it's resolved soon, right? They'll say things like that. You hear that a lot from China, but they're not going to take an active stance one way or the other regarding the conflict. Does that, has Putin miscalculated there at all? Did he think he would get more backing from China or from other countries or, or did he calculate correctly? I think there was a little bit of a miscalculation. And I think a reason why you can make that argument is by looking at what happened just prior to the invasion. Of course, there was the Beijing Games, the Olympic Games that were held in Beijing. And just before those games to quite esteemed pomp and circumstance, there was the signing of an agreement between Russia and China that a lot of folks kind of pointed to as like an alliance pact of a way of like the two sides supporting each other in their anti-Western order efforts, right? And so that would suggest, I guess, if you're from Putin's perspective, look, look, there it is, there's China's support, they're going to help us, potentially even help us with not just being willing to buy our oil at a discount, but actually providing material support, maybe even military personnel if we need it. And so I do think that there might have been a bit of a miscalculation in terms of how much China is actually willing to support Russia. They're definitely not opposing Russia, but they're not offering the support to the same extent or even close to the same extent as what you're seeing Ukraine receiving from, say, the NATO countries. Mm -hmm. 
how worried are you? I've seen a lot of hand wringing and, um, you know, very worried, uh, uh, pundits around the, the internet and on TV talking about, you know, what happens when it turns cold this winter and things get tough for Germans in terms of power and, you know, and relying on uh, natural gas from, from Russia. Um, so, um, how worried are you about, um, you know, sanctions falling apart, support for sanctions falling apart as, as the weather turns cold? I would say I am not as concerned as I was just a few weeks ago. Oh, good. And the reason why is because this has always been something that I've been concerned about. And I've mentioned this. I've even this has even been part of the reason why I thought this would become a more protracted conflict was because I felt that the ability of the Western coalition regime to stay together in light of economic hardships especially as winter time comes, would become increasingly difficult because the idea behind sanctions is it's self-harm, right? You're willing to impose this economic harm on yourself in order to make some sort of broader point or achieve some sort of broader policy change. And I was always concerned about the willingness of countries to stick to that, especially when they start to receive electoral pressure, right? Like it's like, hey, look, you know, people are voting with their wallets and they're upset about these sanctions and and moreover this war is not really on the forefront of people's minds then they're not going to be willing to tolerate kind of the economic harm it's going to take to keep those sanctions on that's actually a big reason why i think ukraine was keen to launch this offensive and launch this counteroffensive was because if it achieved nothing else and it achieved a lot but i think if it achieved nothing else it shows it was a way for Ukraine to signal to its Western backers, look, that you are not sending good money after bad. Mm-hmm. You are, this is worthwhile. <laughs> we can win this. We are an effective force. We're fighting for, you know, it's not just you're not just supporting us in a hopeless effort that maybe we can survive. It's like, no, we can actually win this. We can beat the Russians. And it's a worthwhile investment for you to continue to not only supply, which has been a big thing that Zelensky has been pushing on, you know, even going back to the very beginning of the war, when he said, I don't need a ride, I need ammo. Right. And he's been very much pushing on that, but also continue to put the economic pressure on Russia to continue to weaken it. So that's a big reason why I feel like the possibility of maintaining this sanctions coalition is better now than it was just a few weeks ago because i think ukraine ukrainian forces made a wise decision by trying to demonstrate this is worthwhile and we're talking about it again right mm-hmm. because of their success it has put this war back i mean <laughs> one thing that's been pointed out by folks is it moved queen elizabeth off the front page right, right. you know everybody was talking about queen elizabeth and her passing and of course that is a significant event and then when this counteroffensive was launched suddenly ukraine was back on the front page it was the thing everyone was talking about again well, that's essential though especially given that the western coalition is comprised of democratic countries it is essential that you keep that in the front page that the public continues to support the efforts that it takes for ukraine to fight russia all right paul a little lightning round before you go um one sentence or less just your reaction to to these questions so um when when biden says we will defend taiwan uh what was your thought when he said that nothing new here 
Uh, did you happen to see the the QAnon music at the uh, recent Trump rally? I did. Um, uh, your I'm thoughts? Not, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not real sure what to think about that. Uh, Very odd. There's 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 some bizarre stuff going on. Yes. <laughs> Very eerie. Uh, at the beginning of the war, you were you said something to the effect of that this was one of the biggest risks of an outset of war between the great powers that you had seen in, in quite some time. Has that risk diminished, in your opinion? The risk has diminished. But as Biden made clear in his 60 Minutes interview the other night is there's if Putin were to use nuclear weapons, that could very much change things. All right. And besides uh, besides nuclear weapons, um, how worried are you about nuclear accidents? Is that still an issue of them sort of, you know, um, undermining, booby trapping, um, you, you know, otherwise causing a catastrophic nuclear accident? One of these power plants? I think that is still a possibility. And indeed, that was a real possibility. Again, just a, uh, what a week or so ago, there were yeah. concerns about that. So, yes, that that risk has not gone away. Paul Post, we appreciate you coming back and, and giving us a good update. And uh, hopefully in the very near future, you'll be back to, to tie a bow on this and say that things have been resolved in the best way possible. So, Dr. Paul Post, thank you so much. Thank you again for having me on the show. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Paul Post is super smart and he gives us really great insight into the war in Ukraine. Next up is yours truly on the Bold Dominion podcast. As I said at the front of the episode, Bold Dominion is a podcast focusing on issues concerning the state of Virginia. They asked me to come on their show to explain the ways in which neighborhoods impact the future success of children raised in them. And I've done a lot of research in that area. So I hope you enjoy this interview. When it comes to inequality, Virginia is a land of extremes. The state is home to four of the 10 richest counties in America, all in Northern Virginia. Virginia is also home to four of the most economically distressed counties in America, all in Southwest Virginia. And of all 50 states, Virginia has the largest gap between the minimum wage and the bare minimum actually needed to support a family of four. That's according to the Commission Examining Racial Inequity of Virginia Law, Later in the show, we sit down with the vice chair of that commission, Andrew Block. He'll share what they found and what progress has been made since. But first, we talk with sociologist Lawrence Eppard. He co-authored a 2021 study called Social and Economic Costs of Inequality in the State of Virginia. Turns out there are big disparities in social mobility across the state, which means in some counties, it's a lot harder for people born in low-income families to escape poverty. Eppard breaks down what inequality of place looks like and its consequences. There's a variety of factors beyond one's control that play a huge role in their success in life and what we call their life outcomes in sociology or their life chances. And inequality of place basically means um, by virtue of being born in particular neighborhoods and particular counties, particular areas of the country, some people have vastly different chances of having a quote unquote successful life compared to others. If you think about like risk of uh, incarceration or what's their likelihood of having a high income or graduating college or being upwardly mobile, we can look at where you live and you can look at it 
any unit of analysis you want. So you can look at the census tract level, you can look at the county level, as I did in this paper, or you can look at the commuting zone level, which is sort of the region or the, you know, the metropolitan area where you live. And you can say, okay, by virtue of being born in this particular area, is your risk higher or lower of this particular outcome? And we find that those outcomes, the risk of those outcomes varies significantly across place in the US. I was curious, could you like give a quick rundown of what your study found pertaining to um, inequality of social mobility here in Virginia? Absolutely. And I can give you some really concrete numbers here as well. So um, let me give a little bit of background. So back in the late 1980s, I think it was 1987, the IRS started requiring people to put the social security numbers of any dependents they claimed on their tax returns. And so the idea was you were going to stop fraud, right? So if you claim you have 10 kids to lower your tax burden and you don't actually have them, then you won't be able to put the social security number on there. So that was the intent. What ended up happening was, though, was now for the first time, if you could get access to those data, you could actually track people over time from when they were born to when they become uh, adults and see if they are incarcerated, see what their household income is. Uh, did they get married? Were they upwardly mobile? You can look, you know, did they graduate from college, et cetera? You can look at all these outcomes and you can then trace it back to where did they grow up? What was the household they grew up in and where was that household located? Okay, so uh, some researchers did that. One of them's name is uh, Roz Chetty. He's an economist at Harvard University. Uh, he got access to those data and he made it available to researchers. Now, it was anonymous uh, and it was in the aggregate. So he doesn't know like your individual, you know, tax ID number or anything like that. But uh, in the aggregate, what you find is generally speaking across the U.S., there are so many characteristics of communities that impact how successful the kids are who are raised in those communities. There's a whole number of them. We could go through a variety of them, but there are five that really stand out as being really important. The first is single parenthood. And we don't mean single parenthood of the individual household you're in. We mean, regardless of whether your parents are married or not, living in a community with lots of single parents ends up uh, offering less opportunity for kids born there. So that's one. Another one's social capital. So the strength of your social networks, do you know people who have resources and can offer support to you? Racial segregation. So the more segregated a community, the less opportunity it affords people. Income inequality ends up being a really powerful one. So the more unequal the income in the area, typically speaking, the less opportunity for kids to rise up. And then, of course, one that most people could guess, school quality. So those are the five variables. They come out. If you look at this article, you can see we've actually um, illustrated how some of these variables work. Now, your question was very specifically, could you talk about the, the inequalities themselves in these outcomes? And they're, they're pretty stark. So you would expect in a rich community, you would expect rich kids to have much better adult outcomes than poor kids. But that is not necessarily because of the community itself. It could just be, well, the rich kids grew up in rich households and they had lots of money and resources and therefore they were successful. What we do in this paper is, and what we do in, in a series of papers like this, is we just compare low-income kids in different areas. So you could be at a rich county, but we're only looking at the low-income kids, right? And so low-income kids in Fairfax County, Virginia, which is one of the wealthiest places on earth, by the way, um, in Fairfax County, Virginia, 
about 21% in this study of kids who grew up in this area, I think it was in the early 1990s, ended up being upwardly mobile. They made it to the top income group uh, in the income distribution. So that's about what you would expect. You know, you'd expect about 20% of people to make it to the top 20% and then 20% to make it to the next 20% and so on. So that's kind of a normal outcome. That's kind of a um, outcome that you would want. That's an ideal outcome, right? At the bottom end, so if you go down to say Petersburg City, it's less than 2%, right? So you go from 21% to less than 2%, right? And again, we're not looking at, oh, well, you know, Fairfax County probably has more rich kids, right, than Petersburg City. We're excluding those people. We're only looking at do poor kids in Fairfax County end up upwardly mobile at a higher rate than Petersburg City? And the, and the answer is absolutely yes. And there's, of course, a bunch of counties in between there. So I'll give you one more. Um, let's talk about uh, incarceration. So obviously, a low number would be really good, right? Nobody being in prison uh, in adulthood. So in Highland County, Virginia, the number was zero. Zero percent of uh, poor kids who grew up there in the early 90s ended up incarcerated by their mid-30s. A high was almost 14% in Williamsburg City, Virginia. So these are huge numbers. 14% is much higher than the actual number of people in the U.S. who are incarcerated. Um, not ideal in any realm of, of uh, how you would measure that. So um, yeah, and again, we looked at college graduation. We looked at marriage. I mean, you name the outcome. We looked at a variety of them and you just see these huge disparities and place ends up mattering a great deal. I'm curious, could you also like walk us through what the consequences are of this level of inequality? So, um, I mean, one of the consequences obviously is uh, that there are these things that you don't choose that are involuntary characteristics that you had nothing to do with. You didn't choose the family you were born into. You didn't choose the neighborhood they lived in. You didn't choose your racial group, your ethnic group, your gender, right? Uh, You didn't choose the school you attended, the country you were born into, the specific historical era you were born into, right? So none of this stuff you chose, and yet it has a profound impact on where you end up as an adult. So at the individual level, absolutely, they have these huge consequences. But you, you bring up a, an excellent point, which is the societal impact of all this stuff, right? So uh, one of the f- places where these kinds of discussions can sometimes grind to a halt is when you focus just on whether or not people feel a moral obligation to address these things, because some people do and some people don't. Some people feel like it is society's responsibility to help these kids who through no fault of their own had a harder time of it than others. Some people feel like it's not uh, society's responsibility. But one of the things we did in this paper was to think about it differently, was to think, okay, we know there's a cost to individuals, right? If you grow up poor, if you grow up in uh, um, disadvantaged areas, your likelihood of going to jail, not graduating college, not getting married, being a teen mother, all these sorts of things increase. What about society though? Does society pay some penalty? Does society carry some cost for child poverty? And the answer is absolutely yes, right? So you can actually measure, and we did in this paper, a colleague of mine, Michael McLaughlin, uh, did a lot of this analysis, and he's one of the co-authors on this paper. What he did was he um, looked at kids who grow up poor, how much more crime do they commit? How much more likely are they to be incarcerated? Um, How much more likely are they to have health costs and be less economically productive and so forth and so on? 
And society ends up bearing those costs, right? So somebody pays those additional health costs. Somebody pays the, for the costs of additional street crime and incarceration. Uh, our economy suffers by having less economic productivity, right? And so what we found, what we found was uh, in the year analyzed 2019, it costs Virginia, not these individuals, the state of Virginia. So this is all of us. I say us. I grew up in Virginia. I now live in Pennsylvania, but uh, I grew up in Virginia. It costs everybody who lives in Virginia $24 billion per year. It's a lot of money, right? And so what, end, what you end up finding is that inequality costs individuals, of course, right? Because it hampers their ability to be successful adults, but also it costs the largest society, regardless of whether we care or not, we, 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 we carry that burden. So the question is, you're going to pay regardless, Right? We're going to pay for it. So the question is, do you pay to prevent it or do you pay for the outcomes of allowing this inequality to happen? Well, you can actually analyze that, right? So the question is, how much would it cost to prevent it versus the cost of experiencing it on the back end? And uh, what Michael and uh, another colleague of mine, Mark Rank, have shown in other research, not in this particular paper, but in other research, what they find is for every dollar that you spend on uh, reducing child poverty, you can save between $7 and $12 in the societal consequences. So it makes more sense. It's kind of like, you know, a heart attack, right? Like it makes more sense to pay money now and eat good now rather than pay $70,000 for a bypass surgery later, right? Same premise here. So you pay $1 of prevention now is worth $7 to $12 of the societal cost of child poverty later. And so for us, again, as social scientists, we try not to tell people, here's the policy you should enact. Here's what you should do. What we try to do is say, here's what's happening. Here's what we think is causing it. We, we can try to evaluate different policies, um, but you can kind of lay this out for people. And the choice is, is pretty stark, right? You can pay for it now or pay for it later, but it's going to be paid for. The question is how much you want to pay. Lawrence Eppard is a professor of sociology at Shippensburg University in Pennsylvania. Utterly Moderate is the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Visit us at connorsforum.org and be sure to subscribe to our free email newsletter while you are there. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.